Hey everyone, my name is Noble, and I'm the Connections Pastor here at the River Church. Thanks for checking out one of our messages today. We would love to connect with you and your family. An easy way to do that is you can text River Connect to 97000, or you can go online to our website, theriverchurch.cc, to learn more about us and our upcoming events. If you'd like to give to the River Church, you can text an amount to 84321, or you can go online to our website and click the Giving tab. Thanks again for joining us today, and I hope you're blessed by the message. Well, we are digging right back into the Sermon on the Mount this week, and I can't tell you enough that this week's message applies so much based upon the message we even just heard. Um, I am so thankful, first of all, for how Justin Dean came and spoke last week. I thought Justin did an excellent job keeping us moving forward into the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm just so grateful for him coming last Sunday, and we're getting to hear from him, and, and uh, so just again, thank you for him being here. But being back in the Sermon on the Mount, again, we have to understand when we go back to the beginning of this passage in Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be for the majority of the time today. If you have your devices, you can actually download the River Church app, and it's got the Bible in there, and it'll give you all kinds of information about everything going on here at the River Church. But So it's Matthew chapter 5, we will be in verse 21 is when we start. But Jesus has given us this idea of what it means to be a follower of his. The whole first part of it, the Beatitudes of uh, blessed are you when, and then you get this, and, and all these things. See, Jesus is talking about how to be a follower of him. And it's not an all-encompassing list, but the reality is, is that it's not meant to be a guilt trip either. It's not like if you don't live up to this, you're a terrible person. This is, the, this is what he's calling us into, to be poor in spirit, to mourn over our sin, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the list goes down through the, through the Beatitudes. And if we live this way, all of these things he's about to say will be true of us as well. It's like he gave us a general picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and now he's going to start talking about the specifics. He's going to go through the rest of this this chapter and then continue on specifically about how the Christian life is lived, how a Jesus follower lives in the world around us. And like a couple weeks ago, we talked about being salt of the earth. He started with that, being salt, being a moral preservative in the world and being the light of the world to shine Jesus' light to everyone around us. These things are very important and we have to understand that. When we get to this path, these passages, we got to know that he's basing it on what he just said. Again, here's Bible Study 101. If we just pick a verse out that we want to read, we can make it say a lot of things that the verse was never intended to say. All right? So we have to know that what we're talking about now is based upon what he said at the beginning of his sermon. In the first, I think it's nine, ten verses. And then he talked about salt and light, and now he's getting into this next topic this morning. But again, these are the specifics of what it means to live for Christ. So it's a, it's a good thing to be digging into so that we can know what God is calling us to do and how God is calling us to live and the heart God is calling us to have. All right? But there's an interesting thing that we have to, that we have to just talk about initially. We're going to hear this phrase, and it starts in verse 21, and it's just 21a, and it says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old... You have heard that it was said to those of old. And Jesus will actually bring this phrase to begin new topics of his message in verses 31, 33, 38, and 43. He repeats this message. Anytime you hear something repeated, a phrase repeated in scripture, you got to pay attention to it. Because that means there's some importance to it. There's a reason why the angels cry, holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord of lords. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's really holy. But anytime the Bible, the Bible uh, repeats something, we've got to pay attention to it. There's a reason it's there. And so we got to ask questions of that when we get there. And if we look at face value of this, we could look at this passage and say, oh, the title in my Bible, the little word that's right there, Jesus is going to speak on anger. Oh, I shouldn't be angry. I need to be more happy. Okay, we're going to move on. And we could just take it at face value and not hear what Jesus is really saying in the depth of what he's saying. And let's be honest. So many times when we come to scripture, when do we come? We come in times if we come, because if we're busy, usually getting into God's word is the first thing that goes. But if we do come to God's word, what are we doing? We're reading it, and we don't have a lot of time, but we want to we be able to spend some time. And we kind of, it's just like skimming rocks off of a lake, right? You throw a rock, and it cops right off the top. And we don't always take the time to really dig into God's word, and we're going to do that this morning. So my first question is, who has heard that it was said? Who is Jesus talking to here? Well, Jesus was speaking to a primarily a Jewish audience. How do I know that? I got to go to the uh, place where the Sermon on the Mount was more than likely given in Israel back in 2019. I tell you, it is amazing to read the word. I, I bring it up a lot, but I, if, if you have a chance to go to Israel, you got to go. If you're, if you're not saving for it now, save for it. It's an amazing thing to do. When I, get, when I read this passage, I can picture in my mind's eye what Jesus was looking at. It was just, it's an amazing thing to be able to, to have that in your mind's eye. But he was speaking to a Jewish audience that had to rely on the rabbis or the teachers of the law to understand God's word. Because while there were some scr- scrolls written, it's not like they had the copy of the Bible or the copy of the Torah at the time laying around in their home all the time. It was, it was read in the synagogue. And so they were relying on the, on the rabbis to really give them the word of the Lord. But that was complicated with the fact that while they were in captivity in Babylon years before, much of Israel had ceased to know and be able to speak or read their native language of Hebrew. They now spoke Aramaic because of where they had been and where they had come back to the promised land. And so this is a double whammy. They didn't know the language that the Bible was written or the, the Torah was written in, and they were relying upon the um, rabbis to give them. And so the rabbis had taught the Torah, but they hadn't taught it purely. They added a lot to take away and took away a lot to get out of certain things. The people really had no choice but to follow what the rabbi's interpretation was. And every rabbi would have a different interpretation. So different people believed slightly different things about what Torah had to say. Which, by the way, that's the Old Testament, just in case you're wondering what that is. That is the Old Testament. That is the scripture that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, had during Jesus' day. So the next question is, what was said? So the rabbis had their own, like I said, they had their own interpretation of the word of God. And and while they taught it, they taught their interpretation of it. Or what was called their yoke. It's very interesting that Jesus would later say that you should cast your cares on him and take his yoke upon you because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's actually referring back to all these rabbis who put so much 
um, extra, so much requirement on their followers. And they put so much more than what God ever intended on their followers. And he just says, no, 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 no. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so the religious leaders put a lot on the people through their interpretation. In fact, uh, another thing I learned when I was in Israel is that the rabbis, they would know that there is this one thing that God didn't want you to do. Let's say, uh, um, you know, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols or something like that, right? And they would go, okay, we don't, God doesn't want us to do that. And originally the intent was pretty good. we like, we don't ever want to get here. So we're going to put a fence out here and don't even touch it. And then we're going to put a fence out here and says, don't even buy it. And then we're going to put a fence out here and says, don't even look at it. And then we're going to put a fence out here that, you see what I mean? So if they have all these fences out here, they'll never get to the middle where they actually disobey God. The problem is, is these rabbis were fallible, sinful men, just like every single other one of us that need a savior. And they got selfish. In fact, it was really interesting. You know, Jewish people don't eat pork, right? It's not kosher. It was, they weren't supposed to eat in the Old Testament. And yet in Israel, there are pigs. What? They raise pigs. You're like, what? What's going on? We're driving by this herd of of pigs. Uh, I think we're coming down from Jerusalem, going up toward um, the Dead Sea. Actually, I should say going down toward the Dead Sea. It's not up anywhere. Um, But... um, we drove by this, this, this field, and there's a bunch of pigs out there. And we're like, why is there pigs here? And our, and our, our, uh, our tour guide tells us a great story. So I can't remember when, but there was a lot of Russian Jews, Russian Orthodox Jews that migrated to Israel, I think in the 1940s when Israel was formed as a nation. Well, they had always raised pigs just because it's what they did. But, on, but the rabbis had declared that on the land of the nation of Israel, you cannot raise pigs, nor shall they be fed or whatever. And yet here's pigs. How did they do that? They built raised platforms. They're not on the land. They're on raised platforms. And that is an exact example of what had happened with all of the regulation that had been put on the people of Israel. Crazy, right? We cracked up for that one a long time. I've loved that story ever since. I mean, and they had these little ways of getting around different things to justify their actions. Personally, I also feel that like that's, I mean, if you go do Lent, I think it's kind of weird that, oh, we're not going to eat meat, but we're going to have a fish fry on Friday. I don't know. It feels the same way to me, right? If you're going to make a, make a commitment, make the commitment. But anyway, that's the story. And that, 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 so that's kind of what had been going on. All these things had been added on. And the people <laughs> always had to go ask a rabbi, can I do this or not? Right? And so they had gotten around things. And the rabbis had ultimately positioned themselves to be in a better position because they were the leaders. And what the people had been taught was not the law itself. It was a representation of the law from the scribes and the Pharisees. And then Jesus later says in this same verse, or sorry, in verse 22, which we won't go there yet, but he says, but I say to you. And he does this all the way through his next teaching, which means Jesus is speaking from a position of authority here. He's not boastful about it, but he says, you have heard it put this way, but that's not really it. This is what it's really about. He's calling out the religious leaders here, which he did his entire life. It's what eventually got him crucified because the religious leaders had had enough. And they even worked the law to crucify the Son of God. 
He says, you have heard these guys interpret the law of Moses, but let me tell you what the law is really saying. He's claiming to speak not only as Jesus the man, but he's claiming to speak as God. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Remember, Jesus didn't copy this law. He wasn't a scribe. He didn't write it down for the Father. He spoke it. He is the word made flesh, and he dwelt among us. He knows what this law is all about. It's more than the words on the page, coupled with the narrow interpretation of these scribes and the Pharisees. Yes, it's the words on the page, the letter of the law, but Jesus says, here is the spirit of this law. This is God's word. This is what God said. That is what Jesus is saying here. So the whole Sermon on the Mount is the writer of God's word, the speaker of God's word, God in the flesh, the word in the flesh, telling the crowd that day and now us what he really meant. It's his interpretation of what God's meant in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus is saying. And this should set the tone for us over the next coming weeks of this series. This is Jesus telling us exactly what he meant. All right? So let's dig in a little bit. I've entitled the message today, Offended Much? We're talking about anger. So while that little, that, that, that little um, word at the top of, of your Bible, if you've got your Bible or you've got your app, it probably says anger there. Um, we are digging into what Jesus has to say about anger. And it's a hard one because when we think about anger, the, word, or the, the, the images that we typically have in our heads is smoke coming out of somebody's ears, red face, screaming, yelling, maybe even abuse situations Of course, all of those things are wrong when it comes to anger, but that's typically where our definition stops because we don't want to apply it to ourselves. Let's really be honest. We don't want to apply this to ourselves about our own, let's call it frustration, right? But people get offended at everything today, don't they? I mean, little things. Let's be honest, so do we. We get offended at everything. Why? I believe because we're looking for it. We're looking for being being offended. If you look to be offended, guess what? You'll find it. That's the way it'll be. If you're looking to be offended, you will find it. It's that simple. In fact, I've been in ministry going on 25 years. I think, is it this? I think next Sunday is 19 years for the Yates family here um, at this location. And... uh, um, so I've seen a lot in 25 years in ministry. We've had people come, we've had people go. And there's one story that, that pertained to this topic, and of course I'm not going to use names, I'm going to be very general because we don't need to know. But the reality is, when I first came here over 19 years ago, apparently I said something about something kind of in a joking way. And 10 years later I found out that as they decided to leave the church and were fairly upset as they were leaving... They told me that they were highly offended at that comment that I had made 10 years earlier, and they had never talked to me about it. And I went, really? Man, I'm sorry you carried that for that long, because I would have never meant it that way. And we could have reconciled that, right? And I don't bring that up to, like, have have any, like, oh, poor job. That's not why I bring it up. I bring it up because all of us do that. We take offense at something, and then we don't, we don't address it, and... We can carry something for years, and the person would go, what, really? I would have apologized for that 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But we hang on to these things, and we get offended, and Jesus is going to tell us what we need to be doing instead. 
In reality, we have begun to believe the worst of other people, haven't we? We always believe the worst, the worst intentions of the people around us, at least for the most part. Believing that everyone's out to get us at the core of being offended, though, it's me. It's selfishness. It's allowing the opinions of others to shake us, wanting to please people so I feel good. And I, again, I don't know about you, but for me, when I look at our world post-COVID, everybody is on a razor's edge, I feel like. Everywhere you go, it's just, I mean, you, you're too late pumping gas. You got somebody yelling at you, you know? I mean, it's just, it's crazy where we're at. We should be different as followers of Christ. We should be different. And Jesus really hits it here. So let's read these first two verses really uh, as, as we dive in. You have heard that it was said to those of old, verse 21, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What? I'm angry at somebody and I've murdered them? What is Jesus talking about here, right? I thought he was, we were talking about anger. Does it make sense that he's talking about murder and anger at the same time? It actually does. It actually does. Because what had been happening is these religious leaders had been teaching that to murder someone will get you in trouble with the human court. They never addressed the godly court. They only worried about what they were so what would happen to you on earth. And so they're like, hey, as long as I don't kill somebody, I'm good. I can say whatever I want. And so they would go, I mean, and people would ridicule each other. Don't we kind of have that same thought process? Said these sometimes. They didn't even mention that the fact that murder is an affront to God and that judgment that falls from him is going to be much more harsh than anything that court could give. But again, Jesus came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it. And he's about to talk about what God means when he says don't commit murder. Murder is evil and it will be punished. Taking a life is evil. As we've already said, shedding innocent blood is murder. I want to come back and say one more time, this is why we have taken a stand as a church on Prop 3. The shedding of innocent blood is abhorrent to God. And it is murder. And it will be judged. Again, don't hear a lack of grace in that because there's forgiveness in Jesus no matter what. Jesus is always greater. Okay? But we're talking about the, the standard that, that is being set for the followers of Christ. Jesus is now telling us what the spirit of the law is. If you're angry with your brother or sister, that's speaking within the nation of Israel here. So this would apply specifically to us, firstly to brothers and sisters in Christ but also to anyone who's made in the image of God. And let me tell you, everyone bears the imagio Dei, the image of God. Every single human being bears the image of God and is valuable in his sight. And Jesus died for their soul. How dare we speak evil of them? Even if we have every right to. To be angry with someone, some manuscripts here, if you, if you notice, at least if you're reading the ESV, there's a little, um, there's a little number three in my, in my edition of the English, in, in, if 
I could talk, the English Standard Version. And there's a footnote at the bottom that actually says some manuscripts add without cost. To be, to be angry with someone without cause. That anger is going to make you as liable for the same judgment that murder incurs. He's saying that in God's eyes, being angry with someone is as reprehensible as murdering someone. It's devaluing the life of someone made by God himself, someone that bears his image. But let's be honest, either way, whether the, the, the early manuscripts that said without cause, that's actually a little bit broader of a definition. Oh, well, I can be angry, but if it's not without cause. But let's be, let's be honest. Is our causes ever just? But if it's not there, it's even harder. If, if, if we're angry with anyone, we can bear that same judgment against us. But then Jesus takes it another step in this verse. Even insulting another person. The, Jesus uses word, the, the, Jesus, the word that Jesus uses here is the word raka, which is interpreted as a worthless person. They are liable to the same counsel that the scribes and Pharisees would take you before murder. So why is Jesus taking it here? Luke 6.45 says this. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our anger, our offense, our grudge holding is an indicator of who holds our heart of who takes up residence in our heart. How we speak about other people, even if we think we're right, is an indicator of who we serve, of who's on the throne. That's why Jesus is talking here. It's a heart issue. But the reality is, let's really be honest. If we can really truly be honest with ourselves, we have murdered people in our hearts, haven't we? We really have. Strife, gossip, rumors, lying, cheating, fibbing a bit about the story to make you look better, yelling, putting others down, holding grudges in your heart. These are all ways that can destroy people even short of murder. You know, in some ways, you can destroy someone more than a murder would be by how you talk about them to other people. You could destroy somebody's career on a lie. The words we choose to use can destroy people. It would be great if sticks and stones would break our bones and words would never hurt us. It's the biggest lot, one of the biggest lies I've ever heard. They hurt. But then Jesus make a third, uh, 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 makes a third um, application of this when he says, you, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Man, that's more intense than the court, Right? You call somebody a fool. I bet some of us here have called people fools, haven't we? Or at least we've used idiot, moron, jerk face, I don't know, whatever. We've used some words, haven't we? Some other words that I'm not allowed to say in church. A.A. Bruce perfectly summarizes these two words of raka and then this you fool. He says, raka expresses contempt for a man's head. You stupid. Mora, which by the way, is where we get our word moron from. Mora expresses contempt for his heart and character. You scoundrel. 
These two words were not terms of endearment, but of malignant contempt. Yeah, we do that, don't we? Because now we're going after somebody's character. You're declaring your superiority over another person as though you are better and somehow higher than them. See, what Jesus is denouncing here is any kind of self-righteousness, trying to justify yourself before God and denouncing, if not condemning, the other person. How often do we see somebody living in sin and say, I just can't believe it, man. I am, And in our heart, we're saying that because we feel we are somehow better than them. I go back to what we've been talking about a lot. I feel like I've been bringing it up a lot because it's been on my heart. We've forgotten what the gospel's done for us. When we get in this kind of position, when we are angry at all, we've forgotten what the, what the gospel has done for us, what Jesus has done for us, that he has saved us from our sin. And it was dark and it was nasty and it was dirty and it was reprehensible. It separated us from him. But when we came to the cross, he washed us white as snow. And there's so many things we focus on that don't give us the ability to tell other people the same thing. So is all anger evil? Is all anger evil? Often I hear people say, well, you know, Paul said this, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So if I get angry at like bad things, I can get angry. Yeah. Which in reality, if you meant that, you wouldn't need the loophole. Right? See, Jesus got angry. But what do you get angry at? Sin. At wrongdoing. At the results of sin. At injustice. At the result of sin, which was death. At the tomb of Lazarus, he got upset because of the effects of sin. And he took care of that. But let me ask you a real tough question. Is there ever a time in your life where your anger is not sin? Like really? Really? Does anger ever suit you, and is it righteous? Is there ever a time in your life where your anger isn't somehow selfish, at least in some way? Before you begin to defend yourself in your head, let the question sink in. Because truly, are you angry at sin? Or is it really about a way you've been wronged? Or are you actually thinking that you're somehow superior to somebody else? Because when we remember the gospel and we remember what we've been saved from, how can we be angry at anyone? Think about that. If we remember how much, see again, if we make our sins small, the cross is small. But if we realize that our sin was an affront to the almighty God that separated us from him, the cross stands above it all. And how can we be angry at anybody else around us? Because we know who we used to be. And we know who Jesus is beginning to make us. How can we be angry? And I got to tell you, this week has been very, very convicting for me. I mean, I'm not generally an angry person, but I'm an intense person. (laughs) So you know me, you're like, yeah. Um, but uh, Jesus really hits me here. I'm telling you, driving is a struggle for me. It is. And um, 
I use the words of idiot and moron all the time when I drive. I struggle with it. Driving is my issue, and I talk about it a lot. I don't curse or give the finger, though there have been many times I wish there was a Christian way to give that wave. Um, The reality is, is I do struggle with that. I do struggle with that. But here's something that happened one day, and I can't remember. Jeannie may may remember specifically, but when our girls were little, one of them was in the back seat, and a car cut us off. Was it Sydney? Yeah, okay. She's like, yeah, that's all Sydney. If you don't know, Sydney's our eighth grader. She's built a Lord of more like me. It's just the way it is. Um, but we're, I'm sitting there driving, or we were driving, I think, together, and somebody cut us off, and I hear this little voice in the back say, you idiot. <sighs> what have I done? You know? I mean, so, man, that gets you, right? It gets you. So even this week, Sydney was in the car the other day, and I said, idiot. I said, nope, trying to work on that. You bad driver. <laughs> I tried to change my words, right? Man, is our anger ever, does our anger ever serve us? And is our anger ever righteous? Maybe 1% of the time. I'll give you 1%. And I don't know that there's ever been a time in my life when I've been angry that I was really angry at sin. I was being selfish. Jesus takes it a step further. Man, I'm running out of time. We got to go. Verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So now we're called to recognize when we failed in this way either in anger or taking offense or or being offensive. And now we're called to do something about it. Jesus calls us to action. In fact, he says that if you're in the middle of offering your gift at the altar in the temple and realize that someone has something against you or you have something against somebody else, leave your gift there and go make it right. So here's the picture. Herod's temple in all its splendid glory. You've walked through the outer courts. You've walked through the gate. You've come into into this courtyard where there's this massive altar. And right before you stands the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells. And only the high priest can enter. And you are offering your sacrifice on this altar. And you're about ready to put this offering to the Lord on the altar. And you realize that, oh my goodness, I'm upset at someone or somebody's upset at me. He is calling you to leave it there. Go make it right and then come back. What does that look like for us today? Well, Jesus is saying here that your sacrifice means nothing if you don't. It becomes religious practice, not meaningful worship. So for us today, if you come to church to worship the Lord and you're raising your hands, it means nothing if you have offense with someone or if you have anger in your heart or if you haven't made it right with another person. What that looks like is you stop worshiping. If it's somebody in this room, you go to them and say, can we talk for a minute? You take them into the lobby, you find somewhere in the building and you make it right in that moment. You stop your worship and you go make it right. And you offer forgiveness and grace and mercy in both directions. Let me tell you, the majority of the time when you're offended, the other person doesn't even know they did it. It's like that old thing of if you drink, it's like drinking poison, hoping to hurt the other person. 
when you don't forgive someone? I mean, in reality, that person's probably going to go, I'm sorry. I would venture to say it's close to nine times out of ten. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then he offers one final warning in verses 25 to 26, and he says this. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him, with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now he tells us to come to terms with the other person who's offended or angry with you. Because if we don't, it's going to get worse. Do it quickly. If someone accuses you of a crime like this. You better make a ride or the process is going to get started. You're not going to be able to stop it. That's the same thing that happens in our relationships. When we know that there's something, man, I get it. If you like confrontation, there's probably something wrong with you. Right? Nobody loves confrontation. Nobody loves to say, man, what you did hurt or I'm so sorry. I mean, nobody loves confrontation. But we have to get better at it so that we can love each other better. But if we let it go, something that's as small as... Forgetting to pay somebody five bucks can turn into feeling like a million dollars if we wait six months. Because it will churn and churn and churn and churn and churn. And little issues become large when we let them fester. Jesus is saying, go quickly. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen that way. Because when that, again, it festers because we make ourselves the hero and the other person the villain. We do it all the time. And remember, this is all said in full view of these beatitudes, right? Poor in spirit, remembering what the gospel has done. Mourning over our sin, not the sins of others, but ours first. Being meek, hungering, thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, focused on Jesus, and being a peacemaker. This whole discourse on anger is centered back on that description of a follower of Jesus Christ. So, what is the state of your heart today? How do you react to the things that happen? Do you fly off the handle? Do you say things that you wish you'd never said and then you can't take them back? Here's a really hard one. Are your kids afraid of you? Have you hurt your spouse in ways that you wish you could take back? Have you even... Hit your spouse. Which let me say on a, as a side note, abuse is never okay. And if there's anybody here struggling with that today, I want you to know you have an advocate. First of all, it's Jesus, and then you have us at the, any leadership at the River Church as well. When we talk about anger, we have to talk about abuse. And if you're abused today, let me implore you, ask for help. We will do whatever we can to help you. Have you damaged your relationship with your parents because of your anger? Have you lost friends because of your words or because of angry actions? Listen to the words of David in Psalm 66, 18. It says this, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. See, sometimes, in fact, usually when we get angry, we cherish it because we're right. Look at what the ramifications of that is. The Lord doesn't hear your prayers. He doesn't hear us. 
And then again, why are we so surprised when we're treated poorly or ridiculed or we're hurt by others? Because it's who you are too. See, Jesus was never surprised by how he was treated by people. He wasn't. Because he knew who everybody was. He knew what the nature was. He expected them to sin. And you know what he did? He offered grace and love anyway. And Jesus lived this out. Think about this for a minute. What did, the, what did his good friend, like closest friend, Peter, do to him? He denied knowing him not once, not twice, but three times. I don't know about you, but if somebody does that to me, they're dead to me. Let's be honest. If we're hurt that bad, in our deepest, darkest moment of need, as Jesus was, that's probably the majority of our responses. Listen to what happened after Peter's third denial. It's in Luke twenty-two fifty-nine 59 to 62. It'll be on the screen. And after an inter- interval of about an hour, this is his third denial, still another insisted saying, certainly this man was also with him, Jesus, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That line gets me every time. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. See, Jesus could have been upset in that moment. And I do believe the heart of Jesus was hurt when it happened. But John tells us that just before Jesus returned to heaven after his resurrection, he restored Peter. He restored him. He met him with love and grace and mercy. And God, Jesus, he would use him to build the church. What if Christians were known as people who couldn't be offended? What if we were known more for our grace and mercy than our political positions? See, it's easy to be angry at the scandal of others' moral decline and behavior and how the world is going to wherever in a a handbasket that we want to say all the time, how people seem to hate God. But that's why they need the gospel. That's why people need Jesus. And if we focus on everything else other than Jesus, they're not going to see Jesus anymore. They're going to see everything else. What if Christians were known as people who couldn't be offended? And my friends, we just talked about Prop 3, and it probably got some of us riled up. And yes, it's standing against the word of the Lord, and we should treat the issue accordingly. But we are the salt of the earth. We're here to prevent moral decay in the world. But that is about truth, not bashing people who are made in the image of God. Not about bashing people who are made in the image of God. There's a reason that we're careful when we talk about politics, because it's inflammatory. What we're careful is a church. And the majority of the things we get mad at are not biblical or moral issues. When they are, we attack people and not stand for truth about the issues. We typically go after people, not the issues. 
And yes, when we stand on the word of the Lord, we're going to be persecuted. We should expect that. And then when we're persecuted, what do we do? We love the very person that does the persecuting. We love them. We pray for them. We seek to serve them. It's what Jesus did. And he's our example. How else can the gospel be beautiful in our lives? How else? I've got a story, and it's a book I cannot recommend enough. It's called Unoffendable by Brant Hansen. If you want that name later, I cannot encourage you enough to read the book. It it was so challenging to me. But I want to read you this story. He says, my friend Michael is a very evangelical Christian. He decided to open a coffee shop in the downtown of a city with a large university in the middle of a thriving arts scene. He opened it right in the middle of the usual assortment of feminist bookstores and hipster apartments. He planned to bring a big name Christian, bring in big name Christian musicians for concerts and future or and feature evangelical speakers. The local paper wrote about him and his wife and their purchase of one of the most significant buildings in the downtown area, as well as their evangelical plans for the coffee house. I winced when I saw the article. I had other friends in that neighborhood and none and knew none of them would welcome this development. In fact, before Michael bought the building, it had hosted the community's biggest arts event of the year. It was an exhibition to benefit AIDS research and it featured local art, some of the very intentionally transgressive variety. We could see the culture war coming. One of the exhibit organizers saw Michael on the street and asked how things were going with the remodeling of the building. He also mentioned to Michael that, of course, he and his team would be looking for a new place for their exhibition this year. Michael said, no, they wouldn't need to do that. They could still have the event in his building. They were welcome. The guy was stunned. Really, he said? That's not necessary. He knew Michael wouldn't want his kind of crowd in in his coffee house. Michael told him that not only were they welcome, but he'd pay for all the catering. He'd pay for the wine and the hors d'oeuvres. They couldn't believe it. What about the art that Michael would surely find offensive? Michael said they were welcome anyway, and they were. My wife and I went to the exhibit, and sure enough, we didn't like some of the art for a variety of reasons, though much of it was stunningly thoughtful and beautiful. But Michael had told the event organizers that he didn't need to appreciate all the art. He just wanted to make them feel at home. Instead of being evicted by Christians from the best location for the exhibit, the artists were welcomed. Michael and his wife met everyone at the door. He dressed in a tuxedo and offered everyone chocolate-covered strawberries. Live music filled the room. It turned out to be the best exhibit the group had ever had. That was Michael's style. He hugged everybody. He talked freely about Jesus, but people didn't mind. He told me he would just talk to people about the goodness of God because he knew deep down that everyone is yearning for a God like that. An acquaintance of ours who ran a business nearby was open, about, was open about her distaste for Christians and for her affinity for Wicca. But she loved Michael and would listen to him talk about Jesus. She said she knew he was different because when she'd drop by his coffee shop in her all-black apparel, he'd run over and hug her. She knew he wasn't offended by her. He loved her and not just as a project. He liked her even. Christians in the community wanted Michael to be offended, to draw another line in the sand. You're supposed to get angry and maybe even picket these kinds of people. Michael fed them strawberries. He was less interested in what some Christians thought than he was about his chance to introduce offensive people to a God who loves us all and wants to change us all. Love, as it turns out, 
covers a multitude of offenses. It sure opens doors and hearts too. So the question I would want us to leave this morning when we talk about this anger and everything that we've talked about, what would change in you if you were unoffendable? What would change in you today, this week, this month, this year? How would God's spirit want to change you so you are no longer offendable? Now, I wish this would happen overnight. It's not. It's going to be a process. But how can you become less offendable? I'm going to remind you, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. That's where we have to start. Because spending your time and energy being offended, quite honestly, it's exhausting. We got to listen to the words of Jesus and love well. Better To believe better of people, to assume the best, expect to be mistreated and take it to Jesus and love the person that mistreats you. If you've offended someone that's a brother or sister in Jesus, or if you are offended, stop your worship, go make it right. It's important. Let me tell you something else. If you struggle with anger this morning, ask for help. Ask for help. Go after Jesus. Make him your sounding board. Focus on him. Ask him for forgiveness. And ask forgiveness from those that you've hurt. Seek to reconcile. My friends, let's be unoffendable. But the only way to do that is to look at him. The only way to be unoffendable is to make Jesus our goal. I can't say enough. Ask for help if you need it. Remember the gospel. What would, you, what would change in you if you were unoffendable? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your words about anger. Lord, they're not easy words, but Lord, you're calling us to so much more. God, I pray that we would take up the challenge that you've given us today about being unoffendable, about loving people where they are, even when we're hurt. God, help us to look at you. Help us to take our hurts to you and give us a love and a, give us your eyes for people that we don't currently have. Oh God, I think about what it would be like if we were unoffendable as Christians. It would, things would change. God, help us carry the light of the gospel of Jesus everywhere we go. And help us to love first. Help us to bring it to you. Help us to make things right if we've offended someone or if we're offended. Help us to keep short lists. And if we need help, God, I pray that we'd ask for it. First from you and then from others. Maybe here at the river. God, make us unoffendable. Because of the gospel. And as we carry the gospel with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.